It was several years after the Murrah building bombing that a Palestinian delegation from the Middle East came to Oklahoma City. They were wanting to see how did we as Americans handle terrorism. They were going to several places in the United States, but they came here to Oklahoma City, obviously because of what had recently happened. They were meeting with many of the city officials, but we were also asked would we host them for an afternoon to let them ask questions since St. Luke's was so involved in what had gone on during the response to the bombing. We said we'd be very happy to meet with them. There was a group of about 15. They were mainly psychologists and they were counselors and social workers. And so we served them lunch. They came and we had a wonderful lunch for them. We all socialized with each other. And then we gathered up in the boardroom. And we sat down to talk and they were very polite. They started asking, so what is a Methodist? I tried to explain that. So, so what's the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist? What's the difference between a Methodist and a Catholic? You know, we were going on for a while and I personally felt this is really boring. And I could tell they were feeling the same way because I'm pretty good at reading body language. I, I could see they weren't into this conversation. I wasn't into this conversation. And so I, I finally said, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, certainly. I said, what do you feel about Palestinian suicide bombers? That got us all back together. I mean, that brought a response. And I asked it with the greatest of respect, but one of the gentlemen said, well, the Jews. The Jews, they're taking our homes, they've taken our land, things that have belonged to us for years, our ancestry. I said, well, I understand that. In 1948, when Israel was created, I do know that Palestinians did lose their home and their land Sometimes it had been in a family for hundreds of years. Excuse me, excuse me, the lady said. Several thousand years. She was right. It was actually back in 135 when the Romans came and they pulled all the people of Israel out and they wanted to ship them off and they brought in another group of people and that area became known as Syria, Palestinia. 135. It had been almost a couple thousand years. I said, but you know, you have to understand, we just had come through World War II. You had had Hitler. I mean, Jews had nowhere to go for safety. They were being exterminated. It was the final solution. They were hungry for a place where they could come and be safe, where they wouldn't be dehumanized. A man spoke up and said, but they dehumanize us. What Hitler did was wrong, but now they dehumanize us. I was at a checkpoint recently. There was there with my son. There was the Israeli guard with his rifle, and he said, you are a snake. You are a bug that deserves to be crushed. I could do nothing but stand there. How do you think that made me feel in the eyes of my son? I said that was wrong. What Hitler did was wrong. But it seems to me that suicide bombers, they kill and injure so many innocent people. That seems wrong. Another man spoke up and said, so what are we supposed to do? I mean, if we turn the other cheek, as your scripture says, 
they will just continue to take our land and our homes. Your scripture also says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I said, that is true, but I think it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, if it is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it will not be long till the whole world is blind and toothless. And then it was a, a woman who spoke up. It's the first thing that she had said. And she said, so what am I supposed to teach my son? He goes to school with Jewish children. They call him names. They bully him. They pick on him. Do I teach my son that you're supposed to turn the other cheek? Do I teach my son that you're supposed to fight back? And if he does, one day they may kill him. What am I supposed to teach my son? This was not a rhetorical question. And it wasn't said with any kind of defiance or animosity. No, when I looked in her eyes, they were the eyes of a mother who was full of fear and love. A love for her son and a fear for him in this world. What do I teach my son? And for that one, I did not have an easy answer. How do we respond to people who call us names, who bully us, people who treat us poorly, or even worse, they want to harm us? How do we respond? What do we teach our children? That's a real question. In our scripture lesson this morning, we're reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. And as he writes to the church in Rome, I love the line where Paul says, If possible, so much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. You see, Paul is writing to a, a church, the Roman church, that is in one of the most eclectic places in the world. You have Romans and Roman gods. You have Greeks and Greek gods. You're going to have Jews. And now you have this Christian church. You have this pagan culture. No, it's, a, it's this crazy world. And the church is trying to struggle with how do we live in a world where everybody is not like us. And so Paul says, if possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. It was an encouragement to say you can show respect. You don't have to be combative, but you can still be strong in your faith and your beliefs and the values that you hold, if possible, so much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. It was a call for the early church. You know, thinking back to the Middle East again, that was a fascinating conversation I had that day with this group of Palestinians. And it was, it was so helpful for me. And I hope it was helpful for them. But you know, it made me more acute to what's going on. And I was very pleased here recently when we saw that we had a couple of countries there in the Middle East making peace with Israel. Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates were recently in Washington to sign peace treaties with Israel 
they became only the third and the fourth Arab countries to do that. And they were able to do that because of what actually happened 41 years ago. Because 41 years ago, the first Arab country made peace with Israel. And that was Egypt. And that one really mattered. It was Egypt who signed a peace treaty in 1979 with Israel. Boy, that was a big deal. I remember it well. It was Anwar Sadat who was the president of Egypt. And he had got tired of all the wars that were going on between Egypt and Israel. Now you need to understand, Egypt and Israel had not been very good neighbors. They had not been good neighbors through the years. Actually, for 3,500 years. It goes all the way back to Joseph, you remember, going into Egypt when there was a great famine and all the children of Israel follow into Egypt and life is good until a Pharaoh dies. And then the Bible says, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And when that happened, they became slaves for 400 years. For 400 years, they helped to build the bricks for the pyramids until finally God raised up Moses and Moses confronted the Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And he led them through Egypt, through the Red Sea and into the Sinai Desert. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years till they entered into the promised land. Well, 3,500 years ago, they were not getting along. And now since 1948, with the reestablishment of Israel as a state, in the past 30 years, Egypt and Israel had gone to war four times. Four times in only 30 years. And it was Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, who was tired of going to war. And he let it be known, he made a, an address to the Egyptian parliament and said, I will go anywhere at any time to speak to the Jews about peace. Menachem Begin, well, he was the prime minister of Israel. Of course, they heard it. That's what it was all about. And he immediately offered the invitation for Anwar Sadat to come to Israel. No Egypt person, whether it's the Pharaoh or a king or president, comes to Israel. And in 1977, Anwar Sadat got on a plane and made a 30-minute flight and landed in Israel to come dress the Knesset. I want to read you what he said. To all the Jews there, let there be no more war or bloodshed between Arabs and Israelis. Let there be no more suffering or denial of rights. Let there be no more despair or loss of faith. You want to live with us in this part of the world. In all sincerity, I tell you, we welcome you among us with full security and safety. Those were incredible words. In many ways, people couldn't believe they were hearing them. The Egyptian president there in Israel addressing the Knesset and saying, you are welcome, can we live in peace? It made so many Arab leaders and countries angry, furious. When you read Arab news, they will say the most significant thing in the last 70 years to happen in the Middle East was Anwar Sadat's flight to Israel. It began to change everything. And so peace talks started in 1977. 
They started between Israel and Egypt, between Sadat and Begin. By 1978, they had really begun to falter. President Jimmy Carter was very interested in peace in the Middle East. And so he decided to invite Sadat and Begin to come to the United States to Camp David in order to get to know each other and begin talking about the peace process. They would be there for 13 days, far longer than anyone had anticipated. 13 days, no reporters, no contact with the outside world. And when they emerged, they had the Camp David Accords that outlined peace in the Middle East between Egypt and Israel. And then early in 1979, the two countries signed the treaty. For the previous 30 years, they'd been at war already four times. And in the last 40 years, there has been no war. For 40 years, have there been tensions? Absolutely. They've not gone to war in 40 years. And what it has meant to the economy and to the improvement of these two countries not being at war with one another. Now, how did it happen? I mean, you talk about an odd couple. You talk about an odd couple, Anwar Sadat, Menachem Begin. Anwar Sadat was born in Egypt. He was Muslim. He had a family. He was one of 13 children. He grew up very poor. Early on, he wanted to get rid of British rule in Egypt. He joined a, a revolutionary group who helped to get rid of the British. And then it was a revolutionary group that got rid of the king of Egypt and set up a democracy. Nasser was president. He was vice president in the 1967 war when Israel took over the Sinai and the Suez Canal. 1970, Nasser dies, and now Sadat becomes the president of Egypt. 1973, he launches war against Israel and catches them off guard and reclaims the Sinai and the Suez Canal. And then he, Israel comes back and retakes it again. Now, when he came to Camp David, he was dressed in very fashionable sports clothes. He was someone who came who was very optimistic that maybe we could try to deal with the whole picture of peace in the Middle East. Menachem Begin, he was born in Poland, two Russian Jewish parents. He was one of three children. He went to Warsaw University and there he got his law degree. His mother, his father, and his older brother were all killed in the Holocaust. It had such a huge impact upon him. In the end, he joined a Zionist group that began to fight about the British rule there in his homeland. It seemed like the British were everywhere. He tries to fight the British to get rid of them. He gets rid of them, and then he begins to help fight to hold a state. The British said he was the leader of a terrorist group. He was a hawk. When he came to, to Camp David, he was dressed in his suit. He was very prim and proper. He paid fantastic attention to details. He had no hope that they would come up with a peace process. He simply hoped they could talk about a process that one day they could talk about peace. Now, if you talk about two men who were more different 
an Egyptian Muslim with the background he had and his experiences of life and a Polish Jew who had lived through the Holocaust and his experiences of life. And yet somehow they were going to try to come together in spite of their differences and to ask the question, can we be friends? In spite of all of our differences, can God use us for something greater, for peace? If possible, so much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. How do you and I do that? I'm very concerned that we and I live in a world that is becoming more and more polarized with extremes and the middle is shrinking. How can we, who are so different, come together and be friends and believe that God can use our differences to make this a better world? That's what I want us to think about this morning as I bring this sermon series, The Odd Couple, to a close. And I leave you with two thoughts. First of all, I believe it is so important that you and I remember who we are. Christian. For us, the label that we have chosen is Christian. It's something we chose. Something we said, we are going to be the followers of Jesus Christ. We've put that label Christian on our forehead. And sometimes we forget that's the most important label you choose. Because we will choose many labels in our lifetime. Some will choose the label sooner. Some will choose the label cowboy. Some will choose the label longhorn. And that's a sad weekend. <laughs> we will choose labels like Republican or Democrat, or Independent. And if we're not careful, the labels that we choose, they determine how we see others and how we treat each other and our actions. And we forget that the first label is supposed to create the lens through which we look and we then live all these other things. Those other labels are all okay if we live them through the thing that is most important, and that is our faith as Christians. You know, I look at sports, whether it's children's soccer games or little league games or high school football or college basketball or all the pro sports, and I look at how people treat each other and what they say and how they act towards one another, and I can't help but think Jesus would not be proud. It's okay to love sports and have your team you root for, but do you do that through, first of all, your understanding as the label of Christian? In politics? You know, I, I've seen these commercials come on, and i got to tell you, man, I hit the mute button as quick as I can now. I don't listen to any TV commercials. Don't make your decision on what you think about somebody from a TV commercial. The half-truths, the lies the distortions. I think of the money that is being spent that could be used to bless life. You know, all the name-calling, 
if we could somehow believe that we have a differences of opinions about certain policies and we want to discuss those, that would be important. That's what we do as Christians. You form your understanding of what you believe about different issues. And it's okay if we are different, but we discuss them. Without accusations and interruptions and all those things. You got to remember who you are. We've chosen that label Christian across our forehead, first and foremost. And as Christians, we look to the teachings of Jesus, we read the New Testament. If you are Muslim, well, then you read Muhammad, you read the Quran. If you are Jewish, you listen to Moses and the prophets and you read the Hebrew scriptures, you're listening to the Torah. And if we do all three great religions, though with differences, we'll all agree. The most important thing is to love God and to love your neighbor, no exception. And sometimes we forget that. This past week, I saw a fascinating story, an interview with Lenny Kravitz. You know, I hadn't thought about Lenny Kravitz and I don't know when. Some of you will remember Lenny Kravitz. He's this rock musician. Uh, he has sold more than 40 million records. He's won a Grammy four times, four years in a row as outstanding male performer. Uh, Lenny Kravitz is a, um, quite the success. But Lenny Kravitz ha has written a book entitled Let Love Rule. And it really that's the title of his debut single, let Love Rule so many years ago. And the book is really about his first 25 years in life. It's not about life as a rock star and what all that was about. No, he says this is a book that talks about discovery, finding my voice, discovering who I am. You see, he really does have a fascinating background. It was his father, Cy Kravitz, um, who was a Russian Jew. His parents obviously being Jewish. And he was involved in television, um, involved in all kinds of different television. When he fell in love with Roxy Roker, she was a Christian and African-American with a background from the Bahamas. And they fell in love, and this is back in the 70s, and they got married and when they got married, you can imagine, he said, you know, my mom and dad, they walked down the streets and they feared for their life. An interracial marriage? It was hard. In the end, it was Roxy Roper who got the part playing on the Jeffersons of the interracial couple who lived next door to the Jeffersons. You may remember the show. And it was the first interracial couple white and African-American to be portrayed on TV. And it was something she was actually living, not just portraying on television. And so he says, you know, I, I, in the end, my grandparents, um, the, the Kravitz, they did not come to the wedding. I mean, first of all, they were upset that their son was marrying someone who wasn't a Jew. And then to add on to that, she was black. But when Lenny was born... They wanted to know their grandson. And so they then started coming around because they wanted to know, they wanted to know Lenny. And what they discovered was 
Roxy was a wonderful lady. She was kind, she was caring, she was faithful. They fell in love with Roxy and they became a family. And Lenny says, growing up, you know, I went to temple and I went to church. And I really enjoyed going to temple. And when I was a teenager, I wanted to wear a yarmulke. But he said I also had an afro. He said it made it a little hard. But it's when he was at church choir camp that he was praying one night and he really felt the presence of God in his life. It became so important to him. He was struggling with himself. Who am I? And all this struggle between Jew and Christian and white and black. And so he decided that he was going to look for a whole different identity. He started wearing contacts to color his eyes. He took on the name Romeo Blue as a performer. And it didn't take too long for him just to go, that doesn't resonate with my soul. That's not who I am. Doesn't resonate with my soul. And he said, so I decided to become Lenny Kravitz again. And his sound, well, it was kind of funk and rock. He got the opportunity to go play before people in a Virgin Atlantic Records. And they said, we felt like we were listening to a combination of Prince and John Lennon. What a unique sound. And they knew it would be great. And he's gone on to be this incredible success. But with a fundamental belief it really is about embracing differences. It's about embracing those who are Jewish and Christian or white and black or gay and straight. His first record in the name of his book, Let Love Rule. The question becomes, I think, can you and I rise to a higher value versus all the things that we hold differently? Can we embrace that higher calling of love? When Jimmy Carter called Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin together there at Camp David, I mean, what an odd couple. I mean, these men had only met one time before. They did not like each other. They did not trust each other. They showed up at Camp David, and right off the bat, they began talking about all the things that they felt they had, uh, had been done to them that was injurious, all the things that they felt slighted. They began bringing up old grievances with one another. Within three days, they weren't talking to each other. Three days. That's hard to carry on peace negotiations when you won't talk to each other. Both men and their entourage had pulled back to their own cabins there at Camp David. It was Menachem Begin who decided, I'm going home. This is worthless. This is a waste of time. And it was Jimmy Carter who went to Menachem Begin and sat down not to talk about peace. He said, tell me about your grandchildren. What grandfather doesn't want to talk about his grandchildren? And he started talking about his grandchildren. And then Jimmy Carter said, tell me about your mom and your dad and your brother those who died in the Holocaust. And then Jimmy said, do you want a better world for your children and your grandchildren? Menachem Begin decided to stay. 
Then Jimmy Carter did a fascinating thing. He took the two men and he went to Gettysburg. He went to Gettysburg and he talked about the Civil War that had gone on. How we had stopped talking as a nation and had become so polarized and angry with one another. Everybody thought this would be over in no time. It drug on for four years. He stood there at Gettysburg and said, do you understand here at Gettysburg, 10,000 men gave their lives? 10,000 men. They were sons and they were husbands and they were fathers and they were brothers. In the end, more than 700,000 soldiers would die in this war. There he read them the Gettysburg Address. Let there be four score and seven years ago, our fathers set forth this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. He helped them to understand we're talking about your nation where you want equality for all, how you want to be treated. Can it endure? If possible, so much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. They continue to work and we have to as well if we remember the most important label you wear is Christian. It defines who you are and the lens through which you look at life. And so secondly, I like the fact that when Paul starts this statement, he says, if possible. If possible. He knew it would not always be possible for peace, because there was so much power and hatred and, and meanness that went on within the Roman Empire. It isn't going to always be possible. Christians had to understand that. And you know, we have to understand that too. It isn't always possible. And right now in our country, it isn't always possible because we have become so polarized and so rigid, whether on the right or the left. And when we see things like malicious showing up and we see threats of kidnapping and we see violence, then we must speak up and say, that is wrong. I don't care whether it's right or left. When we see violence and hatred and harming other people, we have to say, that's wrong. But I believe that most people in their hearts are somewhere in the center that most people really do want to be in the center. And what we've got to learn to do is how to discuss differences of opinions. I don't care whether it's on abortion, are you pro-life or pro-choice, or gun control, or gay marriage, or Black Lives Matter. Can we talk about these things and be willing to listen, to listen to what others say and what they feel 
and be able to believe that maybe we have some common desires and goals and ends, rather than being so polarized we cannot listen to each other, and it leads to such anger and hatred and trying to harm one another. Sometimes it's not possible. Anwar Sadat signed the peace treaty with Israel in 1979. He and Begin received the Nobel Peace Prize. There hasn't been war in 40 years. But two and a half years later in 1981, he was at home in Egypt reviewing a parade when fundamentalist far right-wing Muslim Brotherhood jumped out on the parade and they assassinated him. They killed him because they did not want peace. It was almost 15 years later, Yitzhak Rabin was working with Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat represented the Palestinians, PLO. And, and now they were trying to find how could we have peace, just like Egypt has done. How could we find a solution? And it was now again America that called them, Bill Clinton, to the United States. They hammered out what was known as the Oslo Accord. They signed it and said, we're going to do these things to make peace. They went back to their countries to try to help seal the deal with all of the people. And Yitzhak Rabin was holding peace rallies with signs that said, stop the violence, give peace a chance. And while holding a rally, a candle under that sign, far right wing Jewish fundamentalist shot him dead. Because they didn't want peace. It is the thing I think I fear the most that we become so polarized that we don't want to talk to each other. We see each other as evil and the enemy. And yet I think if we would come together to listen to each other and talk with each other, if maybe we could find peace. Not that we all think alike, but we can respect each other. When Jimmy Carter called Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begum there to, to Camp David, I mean, what an interesting group of people. An Egyptian Muslim and a Polish Jew called together by a Christian peanut farmer from Georgia. The three of them came together. And as I said, within three days, they stopped talking. And Jimmy Carter saw how it could fall apart and through the will of his force, he said, no, we're not going to do this. We've got to talk. You know, the fascinating thing, when the peace talks had stalled in 1977 and everyone's wondering what to do, it was Rosalind Carter who went to Jimmy Carter, her husband, and said, why don't you invite these two men to come to Camp David so y'all could get to know one another and talk? Leave it to the women. Leave it to the women to say, you men need to sit down and talk and get to know each other. And so now they did. And now they were fighting. And it was Jimmy Carter who 
finally realized, I can't let them negotiate peace. He started drawing up peace plans. He'd come up with a plan, go sit down with Begin and his few advisors. They would say what they liked and didn't like. All Jimmy did was listen. And he'd come back and revise the plan and then go to Sadat and his group and share an idea. And then he would simply listen and make copious notes. He'd come back, revise the plan. He made them work till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, night after night. Menachem Begin, in the end, would say, nobody worked harder for peace than Jimmy Carter. He worked harder than our ancestors did building the pyramids. Night after night, all he would do is listen and then go share with the other group and then listen and come back and share. No one expected this to go on 13 days. There was no press. There was no outside world. It was just all of them sequestered to say, are we going to come to know one another and talk about this and figure it out? Do you want a better world for your children and your grandchildren? Do you want peace? And so they worked 13 days. And they came to an agreement. They came to an agreement and they signed the Camp David Accord in 78, September of 78, and in March of 79, then they signed the, the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, and for 41 years they have known peace. On the day that the Camp David Accords, this gathering, this summit was going to come to an end, is Menachem Begin, who left his cabin and went over to Sadat's cabin, and he knocked on the door. When Sadat opened the door, Begin stuck out his hand. And Sadat shook his hand. And Menachem Begum said, You are my friend. And it was Anwar Sadat who clasped his hand in both of his, and he said, And you are my friend. It can happen. So much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all. We can do this. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. Um, yeah.